there's sort of two problems for me. One is that this idea of creating money, we put more money out there, we can kind of forget that it's a claim on stuff like energy. It doesn't look real, maybe, you know, it's just a piece of paper, but it's a claim on something real. So if, if you go and take a mortgage out on a house and, and you get some hundreds of thousands of dollars of new money is created, that money is real in the sense that it can be exchanged for barrels of oil or something. So this is this is important because, you know, we, we live on a finite planet. But then the other thing is that it's the idea that, okay, yes, the danger is inflation, but we can control inflation because as soon as inflation kicks in, you know, we'll just do steps A, B, and C, and that will get it under control quickly. But inflation is not something that you can kind of turn on and off easily. People have faith in the money supply up until they don't. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary investors from all around the world. In this series, I've invited one of them, who also happens to be a longtime friend, namely Harry Krishnan, to host a series of in-depth conversation on the topics of volatility, risk, and portfolio protection. In today's world, portfolio construction is fast moving to the top of the agenda of many investors as they try to analyze and understand the riskiness of their portfolio. With ever-increasing uncertainty around the globe, knowing if you are essentially long or short volatility in your portfolio can mean the difference between ruin and survival when the next crisis emerge. The aim of these conversations is to try and understand the experiences that have influenced these highly specialized market participants and the processes they follow to harness their returns so that we can all become better informed investors. And with that, please welcome Harry Krishnan. Thanks very much, Niels, for this introduction. My guest today is David Arl, author and applied mathematician. Uh, he's written many books. I'll give you a few highlights. Apollo's Arrow, which goes into the history of prediction and the potential deficiencies of prediction for complex systems. Uh, Quantum Economics, The New Science of Money, which, is, which establishes various analogies between uh, quantum physics and economics. And forthcoming, Money, Magic, and How to Dismantle a Financial Bomb. Uh, I presume that's coming out in the UK in February and perhaps in the summer in the US. And with that, um, hey, David, how are you doing? Hey, Harry, very well. How are you? Good. I'm, I'm well. Thanks for coming on. Uh, I think we'll start with a little bit about your background. And I know that you've done forecasting in various areas, and maybe you can just give us a little tour of places you've gone and what you've found. Uh, yeah, I, I got into um, forecasting when I was doing my PhD, and it was about the prediction of nonlinear systems with applications actually to weather forecasting. So um, uh, the, sort of the main theory at the time was that weather forecasts go wrong because of the butterfly effect, you know, this idea that uh, the w weather is so sort of sensitive to initial condition that a very small perturbation can sort of grow and magnify and cause a storm on the other side of the world. And um, I was kind of coming at it more from a, an applied math background, and I thought, well, you know, the this is a little bit strange because surely the main reason for forecast error is just that the system is is incredibly difficult to model, right? I mean, something like the atmosphere is is so complex. And so um, so that was the, the thrust of my PhD. And, and then um, I kind of applied those ideas. I, I, I started working in uh, systems biology, which is sort of the ultimate example, perhaps, of a complex nonlinear system, you know, which is very hard to model. So a lot of the same ideas carried over into that. And then um, for my, I, I had this idea to write my, my first book, Apollo's Arrow, about prediction. And uh, so I wanted to have kind of, you know, talk about the, the main areas of prediction. And of course, perhaps, you know, the, one of the biggest ones is financial forecasting, the economy and so on. And so that's sort of how I got into, uh, in, into, into financial modeling and the kind of a roundabout route into it. So, you know, if I think of the economy and I think of central banks and I try and put it in the context of a control system, the system is the economy and I can measure it in various ways. The sensors refer to things like GDP, employment rates, inflation, and so on. And then the controller, however blunt, is the central bank, let's say the, the Fed or the ECB or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, 
there must be multiple sources of noise and nonlinearity in this. Um, is is the notion of the system as being something that's mechanistic and can be controlled deeply flawed? And if so, how? Oh yeah, sure. I, I, I mean, the idea that the economy is kind of a a mechanism is very different from the sort of systems point of view, which views as a, as a complex system which has all these interacting parts and and which is sort of alive, you know, in the sense that it responds to changes while sort of trying to seek some kind of level level of homeostasis. And so, you know, the idea that you can kind of control something like this with just one control knob. I mean, when you think about living systems, we know that you can't, they're not as easy to control, right? You can't just sort of twist a knob, you know, to sort of make it behave in a slightly yeah. different way. Living systems tend to be kind of unpredictable. I mean, they've sort of evolved to be that way, if you like, because uh, yeah, I think one of the definitions of a living being is that, you know, predictability means is dangerous, right? Because it means that uh, if you think of a species or something that is too predictable in its behavior, it's going to uh, be easy prey for a predator. So when you think about living systems, they're constantly evolving, they're constantly changing. Um, and so that that's the sort of mechanistic view of the economy, something that we're kind of imposing on it to simplify it we view it as being even at equilibrium which of, of course has got nothing you know i mean in biology the only system which is at equilibrium is dead right and so it's uh uh is, is really not the right kind of uh metaphor if you like yeah i got it i mean doesn't this relate a bit to goodhart's law as well which says that if you have a measured quantity which you think is relevant and then you turn around and try and target that quantity all sorts of things can go wrong yeah, that's, that's that's right. Yeah, because um, yeah, when when you sort of look at a something like that, you're not taking into account the fact that the system will evolve and adapt in response to the measurement that you are making on it. That's right. Yeah, got it. I mean, when I think of thinking of trying to think of the economy as a control system, I can think of multiple sources of error. One is that we don't really know what the state of the economy is at any given point in time. So using that control analogy, the sensor doesn't even know what today's GDP is. Even that has to be estimated. Mm-hmm. There are various entities that do it, like the Atlanta Fed, but even that's unknown. The controllers are blunt. And then the system itself is highly nonlinear. And we don't even know what the equations or the model, if there is one, drive it. I mean, how would you go about thinking about that, would you look in terms of uh, aggregating various models and just averaging them? Or is that is there some weakness in that approach? Um, well, I think, I mean, one, one problem in predicting something like the economy is the, okay, you can look at the data and say, well, the, the data is incomplete and it's out of date and only gives you a partial picture. But even if you sort of had all of the data about all the transactions that were going on in the economy, you'd still be missing a lot because Transactions are only sort of a number. They're kind of a, a, a bit of a random reflection of a far more complex process. So, you, you know, if you think about the state of the markets, yes, it's the price of everything, but also it's about the state of what investors are thinking in their heads, uh, how they feel about the future, how, how they feel about what's going on right now. All of that stuff is kind of invisible, right? And so, uh, you know, we're always looking at this kind of tiny picture. I think one thing about economics, perhaps, is that we're kind of lulled into this feeling that we have more information than we actually do. Because like, unlike in other social sciences, we have all these numbers, right? You know, So it looks like you should be able to fit them onto a model. But um, in that sense, I think it's a bit more like something like in, I mean, in computational biology, for example, you know, this, this is something where people have tried out lots of different modeling techniques. Kind of, I would say a much broader variety, you know, like systems dynamics or agent-based models and complexity approaches and all this kind of thing. And you know, one thing, I think all modeling approaches, they always bump up against two sort of fundamental limits. One is that as you make a more and more detailed model of the system, you end up getting more and more unknown parameters, or parameters that can only be coarsely estimated. And so you can you can make a model which is a very lifelike simulation of whatever it is that you, you want to simulate. But it's actually no good for prediction because you don't know how all those variables are going to change when something happens. And the other thing is that the systems tend to be dominated by um, a sort of nested 
and, and opposing uh, positive and feedback loops. The positive feedback loops kind of provide the sensitivity, the ability to respond to change, quickly adapt. And negative feedbacks are, are controlling those and sort of modulating them and keeping the system sort of in check, you know. And if you look at uh, any kind of process like, I don't know, if you look at the human immune system, for example, it's actually, you know, it's sort of chock full of all of these things, right? Which is why it's so hard to predict how well we're going to respond to particular drugs or particular uh, viruses or whatever. Um, and, and so I think the, I mean, the approach that, that I've sort of been going towards in, in my work in computational biology has been using models which try to capture the key dynamics of the system. So using kind of like um, sort of agent-based models, let's say, but where the rules behind the agents are sufficiently simple that you don't end up with too many parameters, you know? So it's, it's always a sort of balance of trying to have a model that's not too simple, but can capture the basic dynamics, but you can still actually parameterize it and use it to make predictions. Got it. So if you wanted to try and do something semi-practical in financial markets, you'd have to figure out which agents induce positive feedback and which agents induce negative feedback. And so you do that classification and then you'd have to come up with some mechanism or some way to model the impact of their actions given random shocks to the system. So that's kind of the direction I hear you going in. Um, maybe you can elaborate upon that. Well, I, I think, um, so that's, that's the, what you have to do. And then the other, the other problem in order to make good predictions is you have to predict something, you have to choose the right problem in the first place, you know, because yeah. I think, uh, one thing about these systems is they have these pockets of predictability, if you like, you know, and they might not always be what you want to predict, you know, but sometimes they are. So it's, it's like for, um, I don't know, like in, let's use the, uh, biology example again. You know, one problem is, uh, let's say that you have an anti-cancer drug and anti-cancer drugs are often used in combination. And then the question becomes, what, what's the right doses? Should, should I take drug A before drug B or the other way around or take them at the same time and so on and so forth? And that, that's sort of a tractable, tractable problem because it's sort of so well-defined, you know, and, and I think you can kind of make headway in that kind of thing. Um, but it's, it's tricky when someone kind of gives you a completely arbitrary problem and then asks you to predict it because, you know, quite often it's just the case that it doesn't sort of, it's, you know, it's, it's too elusive to pin down. Yeah, we, we kind of face one of these issues now. If, if I put my dynamical systems hat on, one thing that people often look at is singular limits, which means if a certain variable takes an extreme value, can you say anything about the dynamics there? And uh, can you relate that to the dynamics if that variable isn't huge, but is pretty big? I'll give you an example. Uh, a lot of people have been talking about the rise of passive investing. And the singular limit case is where all assets are passively managed. And there you get some strange dynamics because everything is momentum-driven at that point. If there's a flow into the passive vehicles, buying occurs. And there's no marginal seller. If there's a flow out, selling occurs and there's no marginal buyer. So you can see the wild fluctuations that would be induced by that sort of thing. Um, is there some conceptual way to sort of back off these limits and then say meaningful things qualitatively? Well, yeah, I think that's a that's a very interesting question, right? If, I mean, the the thing about a strategy like uh, passive investing is that it's very successful because, in a way, it's kind of um, it almost acts a bit like a parasite on the financial system because it's uh, you sort of imagine, you know, this sort of typical picture of the, the market is that you have all these sort of super intelligent investors, you know, who are making all these very smart investment decisions. And then out of that, you get this kind of collective wisdom, right? You know, of, of, and, and so things are supposed to be properly priced and a, a passive approach is, means that you're basically doing a copycat, you know, so you can sort of borrow from that wisdom without actually having to contribute anything to it. And so like, like, um, I guess anything in nature, things work when they're sort of kept in a scale. But when you have, when that becomes the only strategy, then it's just sort of a, it just becomes absurd, you know, because there's no information anymore, right? There's just a fun kind of copying random fluctuations. So, exactly. But, it's, it's almost as if, um, even if the average 
active money manager has no edge. The collective belief among the managers that there is an edge, that they can beat the market, could in principle, at least in a capitalist economy, lead to better allocation of resources. And you lose that fundamentally if you go to passive. Whatever your view, the dynamics change. Yeah, I mean, you, you could just sort of imagine a situation where a strategy was based on some kind of obvious flaw, you know, which had to blow up after a certain time. And then if everyone copied it, it would become very popular for a while, but then, you know, it, it would blow up. So it's sort of like you need, you need the diversity, you need some sort of a healthy ecosystem in the market if it's going to, if it's going to function properly. Um, yeah. And I think been... that's one, I was just going to say, that's one thing that I guess they do well with, you know, agent-based models in, in finance is this idea of having kind of a populations of different agents. So you have some who are following the momentum strategy and others who are following a, a, a value strategy and then other noise traders and, and so on and looking at how they interact and and then the dynamics become interesting when people are allowed to change their minds you know when uh, let's say you have a fundamental trader who has been missing out on some amazing gains and decides to throw the towel in and join the the momentum people you know and so that's when you get the kind of real uh, boom bust type scenarios developing yeah i almost get the impression that if you had a bunch of strategies in the market and everyone knew about them which people increasingly do, um, at least about many of them, then as successful strategies became identified, money would flow into them. And so the drift for those strategies would go up, the average return. But the left tail would also increase because at some point, at some critical level, uh, it's likely that people will be bailing out. So it's almost as though there's a distortion in the distribution of returns based on money, basically money flowing into stuff that's working. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you, yeah, yeah, you sort of see the same dynamics in, in ecosystems, I guess, where, you know, strategies like species dominate for a while. And then, you know, there, there are these sort of sudden collapses, right? Where there's like a sort of a, the, uh, a different order asserts itself suddenly. Yeah. The old predator prey models, which I'm sure you're more familiar with than I am, uh, they point to exactly that. If there are too many of, of too many rabbits or too many foxes, uh, that can induce instability. In it can create bad outcomes for both mm -hmm. at some level. So uh, we've kind of touched upon the first topic I wanted to talk about, which was your complex systems background. Let's go to quantum economics, and this is something that I think you are uh, the, the go-to guy, the go-to source for this. So. I'm going to just give you a couple of things and then have you talk about them. A few highlights in quantum uh, physics at the most general level. One of them is kind of the uncertainty principle, which says that, which tried to de define the location of electrons in, in atomic physics and basically concluded that you couldn't specify exactly the location of an electron, but you could uh, assign a probability to its um, being in some small segment of space at a given point in time. Um, what, how does that apply, if at all, to financial markets or money? Is there an analogy there? Yeah, the, um, well, I think in a way the sort of e easiest route into uh, quantum economics is actually to sort of not think about the physics analogies because the, the physics analogies are sort of, we, we, I mean, I use them, you know, as well, but they, the, the problem is that you start thinking about these mysterious subatomic particles and all these kind of yeah. crazy behaviors and Schrodinger's cat being alive and dead at the same time and whatnot, you know, and it's all, and, and plus the mathematics becomes extremely complicated when you're looking at something like subatomic particles, but really the idea is, is simpler than that. So just imagine, take the example of a, of a coin toss, okay? So imagine that um, you want to model the not not sort of the outcome of the coin toss exactly, but the the state of the coin, the potential state of the coin toss before you've measured it, if you like. Okay, so basically you got the two outcomes are heads and tails. So you could imagine trying to picture this in a two dimensional space where one axis is heads and the other is tails. You know, horizontal is heads and vertical is tails or something. And then if the coin was fairly balanced, you could draw it at a 45 degree angle, which means it's sort of between those two axes, right? So it's, it's sort of it, it's, it's balanced. And then when you met, when you measure it, meaning that, you know, so you that's a symmetry to, argument. Then. 
Yeah, so that's just for this particular coin. It's a well-balanced thing. So it's just it's just between these two axes, and then you could sort of say, okay, uh, when I um, the, the the probability of it being heads is going to be the projection of that line onto the heads axis, and the probability of tails is going to be the projection onto the tails axis. Which means you know if it's closer to one axis, it's it's more slanted. That well, we're at forty-five degrees, so it's equally balanced. And then we're going to, but we're going to take the probability is we're going to take the squares of those projections. And the reason you're taking the squares is because you want them to add to one, right? You want the probability of one plus the, and this is like a Pythagorean theorem. So that's all yep. great. And so, okay, so that is the picture. So what you're modeling is the propensity, if you like, of a coin to give one of two possible outcomes. That's basically it. All right. <laughs> that's, that's like, that's, that's, that's called like a two norm for probability. So as, as opposed to the normal one norm where you're thinking, okay, it can be heads and, or it can be tails. We're picturing it before we know what's going to happen. We're saying it might be, it's sort of heads and tails at the, at the same time. It's like a mix of these two things. And I'm going to compute the probability using this two norm. So it's going to be the squares of the projections. So that is sort of, you know, there's different ways of presenting probability. And this is like the second simplest after the the classical one so it's like the it's, it's like the next easiest one and the reason we want to use it in something like economics is because with this you can account for things like interference and uncertainty and entanglement between different things so for example if you wanted to have um uh if, if you wanted to sort of think about uh probabilities which interfere, like imagine, you know, I pictured sort of mentally that, you know, we had our coin at 45 degrees. Imagine like I flipped it over. So now it was on the negative tails axis, but still the positive heads axis. The probabilities are still the same because I'm taking the squares of the probabilities, but I've got like this negative number. I've got this negative projection. And when I add those, so when you're kind of, you know, doing the quantum, you know, computations, you add these things together to figure out joint probabilities or whatever these negative numbers come in and you can get cancellation. So this is where interference effects come in. And, and you, know, inter, inter, you know, the reason that you want stuff like interference effects is simply for the fact that in sort of human behavior, like when, when we make decisions, you know, when, uh, you know, when we're kind of thinking about stuff, probabilities don't add together in the usual way. We can have cognitive dissonance, we can have uh, something where the the context of a decision will interfere with our decision and stuff like this. So, so the thing is that you're broadening the scope of what you can measure of the kind of probabilities that you can measure. So that's sort of the essence, really, of the of, of the quantum approach. And the you know the uncertainty part of it just comes in, uh, you know, which which you mentioned about the electrons. That really comes in because you're viewing things as being in this superposition state where there's a sort of a fundamental uncertainty. You don't know which way it's going to collapse. Uh, can, you, can you give a couple of examples of cognitive interference? Well, yeah. So actually, these are um, come up quite a lot in behavioral uh, psychology, behavioral economics. So, um, so one example is um, an effect where they, they did an experiment, um, I think back in the 90s, uh, behavioral economists, and, and they they asked people to sort of say they gave them a problem. So the idea was that okay, uh, you have to do a test. This is a hypothetical sort of hypothetical test, and then you're going to find out if you pass or fail, and then you have to decide if you want to buy a really nice vacation to Hawaii. Okay, so so what happened? So this is all you know. And, and so they asked like people to do this, and and they said, and they did different scenarios. So they said, okay, if after the test you found out that you pass, would you do the exam? And about 55 or so percent said yes. And then they said, okay, another group, if, if you, you fail the test, would you go ahead and, and buy the vacation? And, and about the same number did, like about 55%. And then they asked another group, okay, now let's imagine that you don't know whether you passed or failed the test. Would you buy the vacation? And now that number dropped by about 25% to like about 30%, something like that. So... This is weird because, you know, according to classical logic, you would think like the only outcomes are pass or fail, right? It's got to be one of those. So the, the, you know, if you don't know the result, you should go on the average, which is around 55%. And therefore, you know, you would, you would end up doing the same thing. But instead, what it seems is that 
people are playing out the scenarios in their head. So if, if, if you tell someone they, they pass the test, then they go, oh yeah, I can celebrate, I can go for a vacation. You tell somebody you failed the test, they might go, oh, well, you know, to cheer myself up, I will buy vacation. You, you tell them that you don't know if you passed or failed, that uncertainty comes into it, you know, there's, and, you know, this, th which is sort of, I guess, penalized in our brains. But, you know, if you want to model that, it's very easy to model it using the quantum approach, because basically you get an interference effect. So the two probabilities don't add together when you, an average out in the usual way, they cancel each other out. Yeah, I think we discussed this uh, previously, but it was to the following effect that it, 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 this has an impact on markets because it seems to me, at least according to folklore, that markets tend to be most volatile when everyone is fixated on something that seems to be going on, but they don't exactly know what it is. Mm -hmm. So there's uncertainty around a release, around the significance of an event, or markets are selling off and no one really has a strong view why, whether the view is relevant or not. And that level of uncertainty is worse than bad outcomes often. So a bad inflation print is worse than the market not knowing what the print's going to be. And it's an example, uh, you know, that, that problem is an example of how the context shapes our decision. So you, you have the context of a test and you have the decision. So in sort of uh, mainstream economics, context doesn't really come into it. You know, it's not, it's, it's sort of, let's say, downplayed or ignored altogether. You know, what counts is the decision. Should you, should you be taking this vacation? And, um, but from the sort of quantum point of view, you see that context is very important because it, uh, it, it interferes with our decision-making process. And, and so changing the context can turn out to have a very big effect. So for example, let's say that you have um, a particular decision which is attractive uh, to you for for some reason, you know, you you just actually you, you know you just sort of like this this option. I mean, maybe it's like a, um, a a vote for a particular politician. You just like that person. You want to vote for them. It's actually very hard to kind of change your mind about that. You know, it's not like um, you you need to sort of supply like a large. Uh, sort of incentive of some kind, you know, in order to shift somebody's opinion. It tends to be sort of, our opinions don't shift easily. They kind of jump from one state to the other. Um, and, and this is something that you can model nicely using, uh, using the sort of quantum approach, right? Where, the, you know, you get kind of a switch-like sub-context, sub, uh, which kind of switches our, our opinion quite drastically. Yeah, this is a speech I've given too in a slightly different context, which is that in modern markets, it seems to me that there's a much higher tendency for volatility to spike from a low level than there used to be. And there's some data that supports that. But that points to the idea that um, simply thinking of things in continuous space and time in finance is probably not the best way to do it. The classical theories say, you know, the Black-Scholes-Merton model where you assume, at least in the Merton case, that you can replicate an option with a continuously bl a continuous blend of a bond and the underlying asset. doesn't really work because that, that theory would have made options redundant. And we, we saw in 1987 that that didn't work in the portfolio insurance problem. And then every so often a new generation of people come in and say, well, maybe it does work. And they do the same thing. And it's interesting to note that this discreteness or this discontinuity um, is very significant and cannot be just modeled away. Yeah, I think that I mean, the Black-Scholes model is interesting, I think, because, I mean, when I, when I first encountered it, I, I got to admit, it seemed, a number of aspects of it seemed sort of counterintuitive. I mean, for one thing, it, it depends on this parameter, the volatility, right, which is kind of... Um, uh, it's, it's a fudge it's, factor, it's, basically. It's yeah, it's like a, it's like a fudge factor, I guess. Yeah, so it's, it's sort of like a number, but you know, it's 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 something that basically refers to the tendency of an asset price to sort of wobble up and down, and you can estimate it from past data. But we know that the uh, the volatility that you measure depends on exactly what period you you measured over, and then so on. And then the other thing is that it doesn't take um, there isn't a sort of a 
uh, anything due to the drift or the the tendon the the belief that the asset's going to go up or down right so when you when you do the math and you you go through it all that sort of drops out of the equation so there's nothing there but then you sort of you, you kind of think well okay so so this model is giving you a very kind of an accurate picture in a way of a very logical picture of what option prices should be i suppose but it seems to be missing half the story which is why anyone would buy an option in the first place, right? You know, which goes to your your point, right? Which is that if if uh, I mean, it's based on this sort of you know nice random walk model, and if in your head, I mean, let's say like you travel back sort of several years to when Bitcoin was a thousand dollars, and imagine that you could buy an option, right, on on the on the Bitcoin price in your head. Would you be thinking, okay, I think that Bitcoin is going to follow this nice normal distribution. It's going to remain nicely balanced. The um, the it's going to grow. The the spread is going to grow over the kind of the square root of time. So sort of tapering off as we go off into the future. And therefore, I am very excited, and I shall buy an option. But no, the the reason you you would want to buy an option is because you would have a scenario in your head that it's going to go up by twenty, thirty, forty percent a year for some certain period, but you wouldn't want to sort of overpay because you know the whole point is you're trying to get you know get a deal here or whatever so you would balance that with the other very realistic probability that it will go down by a similar amount you know and sort of go down to zero or whatever right so you would actually have these two things in your head and neither of them are described in the black shoals model i mean one is we're not talking about a volatility thing i'm talking about linear growth kind of you know in a percentage fashion up or down each year and it's bimodal. It's not like a normal distribution. So the picture of that psychological picture, you know, of of, a, of an investor is nowhere in the Black Shell's model. The Black Shell's model seems to be a good picture of someone who's, let's say, selling that option, right? And they they got their computer out and they're sort of saying, well, you know, from uh, we we think that the price will follow some kind of you know a random walk type thing, and there and we can price it using this formula. But um, so this this is something where the you know I think the, the the quantum approach has something to add right which is that in the quantum approach you don't um, uh, you you have a completely different you, instead of doing the the classical random walk you do a quantum walk which gives you a very different probability distribution it gives you this bimodal distribution that spreads out linearly in time so way faster than the classical one. Okay, lots lots of juicy stuff in there. Um, you pointed to the difficulties of scaling laws for Black Scholes, and the econophysics literature is on on points for that. Namely, it says that over very short horizons, tails are much fatter, even with normalization, um, than over longer horizons. So there's a decay to Gaussian or a convergence to more Gaussian-looking behavior as you go, say, from one minute returns to 10-day returns. So you get that, which automatically says that unless you just view Black-Scholes as a mechanism for transferring price strike, risk-free rate, and so on, to a volatility number, uh, there's bound to be a fundamental issue with that that maybe is exploitable. The other is the bimodality. This is something that has come into play more often with the London Whale and various other liquidation events where what we know is that if a large agent is in the market and geared, levered, and the price gets down to a certain level, they're going to have to liquidate. And that will cause a discrete looking jump in the distribution. And it may be that that statisticians don't like that because bimodality is a mess. It's a model. So I hear. But maybe that is the true distribution. And, uh, I've talked about this a lot. It it violates um, all the nice properties of asset price distributions that are implied, but it may be more accurate. And and can you go back before I keep babbling on too long uh, and say how this relates to interference, quantum interference? Well, if if you think of the uh, the, sort of the main model in a way of finance, you can reduce it to like, you know, uh, the classical random walk, right? Which is so you could model that by you start off in one place and you toss a coin. And if it's heads, you take a step to the left and tails, you step to the right and so on. And um, it's uh, and, and then you repeat that process 
and then you look at where you end up and there's a very small chance that you're going to end up all the way to the right because you would have to toss heads you know consecutively every time or tails consecutively to go the other side but uh, and so you you tend to end up in the middle in this nice normal distribution so that's so that's kind of the basis of that and the um but in the in the quantum picture you can imagine it replaced your classical coin with your quantum coin okay so your quantum coin is is a bit like that thing that I mentioned at the beginning so you're in a superposition of heads and tails and when you toss it you you basically applying like an operator which like flips it around and you now what happens instead of going to the left or the right your state which is represented kind of a wave function or whatever you want you know like a, a state splits off into two parts so one goes to the left one goes to the right you again toss your quantum coin those two split off but they're going to meet in the middle and but when they meet they no longer add uh, you know linearly the way that it did for the the classical case now you get this possibility of interference so you just kind of repeat this so this is very this is a very simple quantum algorithm and it's the basis of lots of circuits in quantum computing and it's uh, you, you know you, you can make a device a photonics device which will do this very easily um and so on but when you when you measure the the probabilities down at the bottom you end up with this quantum walk distributions and it's the thing is if you're used to classical statistics it just looks completely bizarre you know because it's very for one thing it's kind of spiky but it's got this sort of bimodal thing you know and it's got like so it, it just looks strange you know the first time you see it you sort of think wow this this doesn't look right you know but when, once you um but but that seems to be a property of you know these quantum systems and then when you kind of look at the i don't know when you know like aggregate sort of behavior it sort of smooths out but the, the main thing is that you end up with this bimodal distribution and it's not the kind of thing that sort of pops out naturally from your uh you know your classical statistical approaches so i, th I think it's kind of interesting you end up with a kind of completely different family of behaviors and distributions yeah, the interaction of the two wave functions or the multiple wave functions creates interesting dynamics. Is there a kind of a poor man's analogy to that, which is there? If there's a, um, there are two distri real distributions for any asset. We'll just pick the S and P five hundred for a moment. At any given point in time, there's the greed one, which has probably a positive drift and a narrow peak in the middle, and then there's, or maybe even might even be Gaussian. And then we have a fear one, which has fat tails. And at any point in time, we don't know which one we have. So we have some probabilistically weighted blend of the two that is describing reality instead of one distribution. So there's a heightened, there's a level of uncertainty that is crudely captured by a weighted average of multiple distributions. But perhaps in the, in the future, we'll be more precisely characterized by these wave function interactions because they have path dependency perhaps in a way that terminal distributions don't yeah and i i think the the quantum approach because you're looking at this wave function which collapses down to measurement it allows you to sort of talk about these what you call it like latent pictures or whatever in the background you know these impressions that, that, that what's going on in the minds of people that may or may not happen so for example two possible outcomes you know the the safe one or the, the crash one will will an asset go up or down in value and i think this this is sort of um i mean in a way what this this adds to the picture is that when you just look at data financial data you don't really get any picture of like dynamics or forces or stuff like that right i mean when when we we talk in economics about the the forces of supply and demand but they're always assumed to be at equilibrium so they just cancel out so we, we don't actually you know try to express them um but but if you look at something like let's say something like price impact right so you know you imagine that you have an asset and somebody makes a very large purchase and um i know this is, this is something that you wrote about in market tremors right you know like the oh thanks for the plug by the way yes like a takeover bid would be sort of the extreme case right but let's you know let's say something a bit smaller you know more moderate like, but you know which is enough to sort of move the price so if you're sort of thinking in a kind of a i don't know like a intuitive way about it you would say that it looks like something where you want to be able to talk about forces you know because the large transaction is acting like a force and it's meeting a resistance, which is the resistance of this price to change easily. But it will shift that price. And, and you know, if you double 
the uh, the transaction, you're going to get some kind of a change in the response. And because the because the the, the quantum approach allows you to uh, work in terms of these forces, kind of it, it, in a way, it links the probabilistic picture that we're that we're used to. You know, just the 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 chances of different outcomes with underlying dynamics you know so you can talk about like let's say for example a linear restoring force which uh tends to restore prices to some kind of an equilibrium and when you quantize that you end up with a normal distribution of probabilities but underlying it you can still talk about this force and so then when you you know when when you use that and, and you view the markets in this way then it's kind of clear that um, the the simplest force is a linear restoring force. Uh, the the resist the the uh, the impact that you're going to get from a large trade is going to vary with the square root of the, the the sort of size of the trade. And even you get a, I mean, one nice thing about the quantum approach is it actually gives you a uh, an idea for the scaling factor. You know, so sort of if you uh, assume certain things about the turnover and whatnot, you get that. I don't know. It's supposed to be equal to like the square root times the um, times the, the 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 daily volatility, something like that. You know, square root of two times daily volatility. So, so, so what I mean is like these these formulas. You you can tie together pictures from about forces, resistance, and stuff like this, and, and you know you can use those, and you can get these kind of findings about the markets. Yeah, price impact is a thorny one because if you're on the outside, you can look at the order book, and then you can use various well-known techniques for um, fitting a curve through um, the change in the mid-price, let's say, versus the size of an order. But you miss two things. One thing is that there is a huge number of tiny orders and very few big ones. So fitting the curve becomes very um, sensitive to the big ones that may or may not go through. And in addition to that, people break their orders up. So unless you're the one who has your own transaction order book, you don't know necessarily where all of the orders came from. And so using alternative approaches seems necessary for everyone other than an entity that does all of their own trades at variable size and can do it in-house. So there's a real, real hurdle there. I'd like to cover two other things and sort of um, let you take... Uh, take control of these. Uh, the first one is, uh, if you could talk about your new book, uh, what the title means and what it's about, I'd be happy to hear that. And uh, then I have one more question, but I'll wait for you to reply to this one first. Okay. Um, well, yeah, the, the title, Money, Magic, and How to Dismantle a Financial Bomb, which is my longest title. And it's even got a subtitle, <laughs> Quantum Economics in the Real World. And yeah, so, so it's basically a follow-up to my my earlier book, uh, Quantum Economics, and, and it's about sort of developing the ideas of it. Like the, the first book, it was kind of based more on the dual properties of money, you know, it sort of led me into this idea about this quantum representation for things. And then uh, after I wrote that book, I, I learned about all this, or after, as I was researching that book, I, I, I learned about all this work that other people had done in things like quantum cognition and quantum decision theory and quantum finance and so on. So that book all kind of tied all of that together but this this book is trying to apply it more just to you know are the everyday experience of the economy so i mean for example like here in canada you know we have this our economic landscape is uh, dominated at least here in toronto by our amazing uh, financial real estate bubble you know which is like so we have this sort of massive price escalation and it's it's, a, it's an interesting demonstration in the the power of money and, and also the sort of the magical nature of money in a way, you know, because it's, it's, it's like prices have just kind of gone up by magic almost, you know, and, and people uh, often kind of compare the financial system to magic and it does seem very strange. But um, I'm kind of, you know, Arthur C. Clarke said something like uh, sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, you know, and, and the argument in the book is that money is a very sophisticated quantum social technology, if you like. And it's sort of magical properties or something that uh, are, you know, come, come out of this out of this technology. And so it's kind of looking at the the basics of of money creation, how 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 money is produced in society and how it all ends up in things like like real estate. 
So it's, you know, that's, so in that sense, it's applying. And it's something that seems to be kind of missed in the sort of mainstream economic discussion here, you know, where all this stuff tends to be about supply and demand. We're not building enough houses and we've got, you know, too many people wanting to buy houses and stuff. And I'm, I'm sort of saying, actually, there's a, another element here, which has just got to do with the properties of money. So it's sort of like about applying these ideas to, to things which affect our lives and also discuss the stuff like, you know, stock market fluctuations, like we were talking about and option pricing and, and so on. Got it. I mean, we're kind of veering into modern monetary theory here, but um, is the idea that in the classical paradigm, at least in physics, matter and energy cannot just be created from nothing. Whereas in the quantum paradigm, you do get the emergence of certain subatomic particles almost spontaneously. Is, is, is that kind of the analogy here? And I know I'm taking you into murky waters, but um, do you have a view on MMT? On modern monetary theory, do you think it's useful? Well, I, I, I do. I mean, it's 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 like um, I think if you like look at throughout history, we've had the kind of these two main theories of money. There's there's one that's sort of the idea that's a kind of a virtual thing, which uh, used to be chartalism, uh, used to be called that, and and now it's kind of modern mo monetary theory is an example of that. So it's basically that money is just kind of a credit that the government makes up, and so there's nothing to stop them making up more credits if they want, you know. And then there's the other idea, which is that money is got to be backed by something solid, like you know, bullion or gold or silver or something. And these these two sort of theories have always been in conflict. And um, but the you know the quantum view of money in a way is that uh, money is something that's created, you know. And it's I you know I give like a the archetypal example perhaps is these ta tally sticks from the Middle Ages, which are these wooden sticks and. Yeah, and it served as money for several hundred years and started around 1100. And it was basically like the sovereign took a stick, you know, and notched uh, something on it to indicate the a value. And this was a tax that had to be paid. And then they would split the stick down the middle and they would give one part to a debtor. And that debtor would have to cough up that money. And then when he did, the two parts of the stick would be matched and destroyed, you know. So that was money creation, you know, in the in the 12th century, right? And the thing is, we're doing exactly the same today. I mean, now, you know, here in Toronto, you go take a mortgage out at a bank. They don't go to their vaults and take out a whole lot of money. They just give you the equivalent of a tally stick, which is like deposit the money into your account, but they keep the record, you know, of the a title, or, you know, a claim over the over the house, right? And so this is money. This is money creation. This is like new money that's coming in. So it's not. Um, um, and that money creation process is something that you can model, as it turns out, just very nicely using a quantum formalism. And and again, it's something that sort of eluded, it seems, a lot of you know discussion. You know, and in in the and, I mean, in fact, this this idea that money is created in this way was only actually formally acknowledged several a few years ago. I think like the Bank of England wrote a an article and said, you know, that actually this is how money's made, you know, and, and, and well, it's kind of, I, I, yes, it, very interesting. I mean, the way I think about it is you have mainstream economics as however you choose to define it. And then you have the, at the two poles, you have the Austrians and the MMTers and the Austrians and the modern monetary theorists often talk about the same thing, just with different tones. So the Austrians will sneer at the kings in the Middle Ages who uh, required an imprint of their face on a coin, and they would basically take all the coins, melt them down, and dilute them slightly, and then reprint them. And that would be a form of inflation. So the, the Austrians kind of sneer at that, and especially what it's turned into with the emergence of fiat currencies globally. And the MMT guys, at least Warren Mosler, say pretty much the same thing but they don't think it's a bad thing. And, but they are the two extremes who you would think are entirely opposed, but they're talking in many cases about the same thing and the stuff that people in the middle don't. With the MMT thing, I can sort of see, you know, like they have very, uh, you know, useful contributions to the debate about how like a s s sovereign country can't run out of its own currency. So it doesn't have the limit. It's, it's not the same as a household, you know, uh, which can run out of money, but because it can't print its own. But I, I think like th there's sort of two problems for me. One is that this idea of creating money, we put more money out there, we can kind of forget that it's a claim on 
stuff like energy, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a claim on, it's, it doesn't look real, maybe, you know, it's just a piece of paper, but it's a claim on something real. So if, if you go and take a mortgage out on a house and, and you get some, you know, like a, 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 sort of hundreds of thousands of dollars of new money is created, that money is real in the sense that it can be exchanged for barrels of oil or something. Which so this is this is important because you know we we live on a finite planet you know and so right and then but then the other thing is that it's the idea that okay uh, we can yes the danger is inflation but we can control inflation because as soon as inflation kicks in you know we'll just do steps A B and C and that will you know get it under control quickly but you know I I would have thought like again going back to the sort of switch like nature of you know our uh, decisions are, are in, and our, our subjective feelings about things. Inflation is not something that you can kind of turn on and off easily. Um, it's, it's something where people have faith in the money supply up until they don't. And, you know, and again, you know, the idea of volatility is, is not much use here because it looks like everything's very stable up until it isn't. And so, uh, and, and when you, when you lose that faith, when you lose the faith in the money supply, it's extremely hard to get it back, you know? So it's it's like, that's where the, I guess, the old bullionist school, you know, kind of had a point, right? Which is that, you know, there's, you, you got to have something sort of, uh, you, you can't stray too far with money. But I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm offering any kind of like an easy sort of a a solution to this because I feel that this is the whole point of money, right? This is money has been bouncing back and forth between a sort of real and virtual incarnations for ever since we invented it. And, you know, kind of switching from one mode to another, you know, the gold standard lasted for many hundreds of years. And then it kind of, before that, there was like the, in the middle ages, there was uh, mostly virtual money. And then before that it was all you know, gold and silver coins and stuff. And now we're in a virtual. So, you know, it's, it's, it's changing all the time. And this is, this is what makes money so interesting, right? Is that it's, I think it's unstable. It's an unstable substance. Um, and it has these very, you know, complex behaviors. But I, I think certainly, um, yeah. So, so it's, it's like there, there's, there's no easy, I'm, it's not like I'm writing MMT off by any means, but I'm, I'm just saying that uh, it's, a, it's part of the picture. That's a, yeah, a couple points there. One thing is that you pointed out in, um, I think it was in quantum economics, that um, money is essentially, which is often, the, the phrase numerare is often used in foreign exchange options pricing, but it's a number. It's a way to assign numbers to things. And you, you point that out very eloquently in, in that section. Um, that's pretty interesting to me. I mean, in terms of MMT, um, I found it to be a very useful educational tool because it explains the nuts and bolts of the way the Federal Reserve Bank, let's say, simply changes the entries in its balance sheet to create credits. Mm -hmm. uh, but having said that, if I read you correctly, if you think of the economy as an organism, at some point you just can't keep pumping drugs into an organism and expect to have good outcomes. Um, is there some sense of that that you have as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that goes back to what I was saying about the link between money and the real world, which is that it is a claim on the real world, you know? So just, just as an example, I mean, let's say that you wanted to, you're really serious about the climate crisis and, you know, you, you want to bring that under control. Do you want to sort of print out lots and lots of claims for energy, you know, uh, that people can go in exchange for using energy. I mean, I guess that, that sort of links to everything with, you know, I mean, including GDP, which is basically a measure of energy burn, right? But um, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's this idea that money is, um, it's not just, it's, it's a number, but it's, it's a kind of a, an entity which binds numbers to, to, to real things. And it makes it very kind of hard to think about right it's sort of it's it's like it's hard to kind of get straight in our mind and it's not just an accounting exercise it's actually something more than that well it kind of gives you that transitivity as well in other words let's say there are 10 things you can buy and in a barter system you need to have the ratio of prices pretty much for every pair here you have a way to sort of relate each one to a number i.e through money 
and that simplifies the problem greatly. And and so that's that's the idea in the in the quantum picture. The idea is that it, it it's a tool for collapsing the sort of fuzzy idea of value that we have. You know, so if you kind of think about the value of something, it's very hard to assign a number to it, right? Like it's it's because the value will depend on the context. It will depend how you feel. It depends, you know, what's going on. Money is kind of a way of reducing all of that information and and sticking a number on it. And it's very, very useful because it means that we can, it kind of gives us like a shorthand, a way for, uh, to sort of settle on prices or whatever. Um, but it also, you know, points to all of the stuff that we're kind of missing out when we do this reductive exercise, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the whole notion that the order book tells you everything about where prices should go, or that everyone has an internal price at which they would buy or sell is a bit flawed because if the price gets down there, they might change their view. So often people don't have a very fixed view as to where they're willing to step in or where they're willing to sell. And and often in um, one thing about like behavioral psychology, behavioral economics, these sort of psychological effects are considered kind of tweaks to like the standard, you know, sort of model of utilitarian behavior and whatnot. But the thing is, it's important to know that they're actually really big effects. So something like the endowment effect where we value something uh, more highly if we if it's in our possession than if it's not. These are not like, you know, 3%, 5% adjustments. These are more like plus or minus 25% adjustments in our values, you know, according to the experiments, right, that, that uh, you know, psychologists have done. So, um, you know, there's that one where they, they took, I think it was beer mugs and they, they handed them out to students and they said, and they asked them to sort of barter, you know, negotiate back and forth. And the people who owned the beer, mar- beer mugs thought they were far more valuable than the people who didn't. So, but in the end, that's what our, that's what the financial system is, right? You know, the, it's, it's the negotiations between people who have the stuff and people who don't have it, right? So they're bringing very different, uh, views of it. And so... But my, my, you know, my point is that these things, that's the difference in context between buying and selling. And these are not subtle effects. These are not small things. These are kind of, these go right to the heart of, you know, how we want to model the financial system, I think. So is it fair to say that, you, that one of the main points you're making across your work is that minor tweaks of the existing framework may be inadequate to deal with with the economy or with investing yeah because the you know, like the the core of the main theory is it says like you know it's 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 an equilibrium model that's kind of perturbed and so you get kind of random walks where things change randomly as news comes in but you can't you can't sort of tweak an equilibrium model to give you like a dynamical model, you know, and you can't tweak a random walk to give you like the, you know, the full picture. So what you need is to actually, you know, start again. And I think, so this all sounds, you know, like kind of a challenge, right? Because, um, uh, you know, our, we have these mental models that have been sort of developed over a long time. And this is where I think quantum computing actually can kind of come in and speed things up a little bit, you know, because I mean, you can draw a line from, mainstream economics kind of getting going in the in the uh 19th late 19th century and that was like the time when you know uh people are starting to think about computers like babbage for this computer and william stanley jevons who was a neoclassical economist he develops he built something called a logic piano you know he was trying to they, they were thinking about sort of these computational systems and they viewed the economy in this way as like a you optimizing utility and rational decisions and all this kind of thing you know and and that's sort of that's you know shaped I think the way that we think about the economy and finance and so on and quantum computers are different they they use instead of having like these bits which are zero or one and they're deterministic you have these qubits which are fundamentally probabilistic and they uh, they're shaped by context and by by entanglement and I mean entanglement sounds all mystical when you talk about it in physics but. If you if you go online and and do a little piece of coding on a quantum computer, you just have one qubit and you entangle it with another, you know, and it's very it's very direct, it's very real. It means the probabilities are linked, and you know, between these qubits, and that's the whole idea of quantum computers is that they use entanglement and interference to make their, uh, you know, computations. And now, 
in quantum cognition and quantum economics, you're using exactly those same modeling tools. So the language of this stuff, you can like you want to you want to uh, simulate money creation, not so easy using classical approaches. In quantum uh, approaches, you can make like a little two qubit circuit, circuit, you know, one representing for a tally stick, let's say one qubit represents the sovereign uh, creditor, the other qubit represents the debtor, and, uh, you know, model it like that. So the quantum walk option thing, very simple to use, um, to model using a quantum device. All of these things become much more natural when you start thinking in terms of these kind of quantum circuits. So bringing it back to finance, we don't know what the price of something is until there's a flow, there's a transaction. But even when there's a transaction, we don't know what the true probability is. We only see an instance of that. Yeah, because the the value, the underlying value, is is a wave function, and, and and so when you measure a wave function, it kind of goes, it goes, you know, plonk, and you you get like a number that spits out at the end of it, right? And that's the price. But if you know, when you when you think about something like the an asset price, when it's not traded, you don't know what it's it doesn't have a value, really. It doesn't have a well-defined value because it's not, it hasn't been measured. You know it's in a band. But it's a very natural way to uh, to model that using, you know, as a wave function, which sort of just captures the distribution and the measurement event as something which affects the, the system. So like something like price, you know, price impact, right? Like a big transaction will affect the, affect the system itself. Got it. I mean, a lot of pricing is a function of human consensus. At some point in time, everyone might agree that the Fed will buy risky assets whenever they go down too much. And that consensus drives price action. Mm-hmm. But maybe that consensus can change. Maybe it's maybe it won't, maybe it will. And uh, a lot of these things are uncertain. A lot of and if you think of sentiment as one of the main drivers of price, at least for credit and equities. It's highly variable. It's unknowable at any point in time other than through its manifestation in a flow. And all of these uncertainties that one thinks about give a good perspective on risk, how risk can emerge that goes beyond just the volatility of an asset. Um, Before I stop, I'd like to make one comment, which is I fully understand why the mechanistic approach came into play. And I, I, I acknowledge its importance. It's just very interesting to hear a different viewpoint on many of these things. Well, uh, yeah, I, I think the, um, uh, the the mechanistic picture of the world has been amazingly influential and it's been developing for hundreds of years. You know, it's like not just in uh, economics, right? But it's sort of, but sort of everything. And I think it's interesting that the you know the quantum picture uh, sort of. It goes against that, you know, because you, instead of having determinism, it's fundamentally uncertain and indeterministic and so on. So it's kind of, I think it's actually like an interesting question. Why has taken these ideas so long, you know, to kind of get out and be applied to things other than subatomic particles, right? Because it does seem like a useful framework for talking about anything to do with, with uncertainty, with risk and so on. No, absolutely. Pro- probably this coincides somewhat with a lag to the rise of econophysics, because without the data, it's hard to make even fairly bold statements that are contrary to the orthodoxy. And um, maybe it has something to do with that, just computing power and data. But I'm not the expert there. So um, would you like to say anything in conclusion? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think I've enjoyed very much uh, the chat. Thanks a lot for having me on. It's our pleasure. I'm sure Niels would say the same. And with that, I hand it back to Niels. Thanks so much, Harry and David, for a great conversation. I really enjoyed learning about the limits of classical financial modeling, how uncertainty can often lead to sharp declines compared with unfavorable economic data, and what on earth is quantum about the financial markets. Make sure you go and follow David and Harry's work because, as you can tell from today's conversation, there are many exciting facets to quantum economics and we really look forward to exploring more of them as we continue our series. From Harry and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. 
If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.